Good morning again, everyone. You know what, this fan, again, it gets me every time. We have a fan up here. For those of you who are just visiting, it gets a little warm in here in the summer. So we have fans up here, but then I realize as I start talking, they start blowing my notes everywhere, so hope that's okay. It's like the, the expensive seats up front. You get a fan blowing on you. It's glad, I'm glad you're with us today. How's everyone doing? We doing good? We had a great week last Sunday. If you were here, we had a big carnival last Sunday, so thanks to those who served and donated and uh, volunteered. It was, a, it was a great time. Um, actually, we have some leftover food, so we were going to grill hot dogs for everybody today, but I forgot to coordinate a grill. But we have ice cream that we're going to be scooping up because we need to just clear out their freezer. The, the, the Methodists would like their freezer back, so we're going to start clearing out some food. So stick around after service for some ice cream if you would like. We'd love to have you. And I see some uh, visitors today, some new families. I would love to introduce myself, get to know you a little bit. We are glad that you're here at Homestead Church today. We have been this summer looking at the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn there today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. If you would like to follow along, there will be the words up on the screen as I read them. But also in the inside aisle of all the pews, or most of the pews, there's a black hardcover Bible there. You could open that up and you could follow along with us. I encourage you to spend some time each week, each day, reading the Word, this is important to our faith to spend time in God's Word, spend time praying, spend time just, you know, receiving of God. And reading through the chapter that we talk about on Sunday would be just a great way for you to, to go through and remember some of the points that we point out here and to follow along with us as we go through it. You know what? I would love to just pray this morning as we begin the message. Lord, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your Word that rings true, for your Word that gives guidance to us, that speaks life to us. And so, Lord, I pray as it is taught today that you would speak through it to every heart, that you would be lifted up, that all focus would be on you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, what we've looked at thus far in Luke, and we've kind of framed it in this one main theme of this, Jesus changes everything. So we read story after story, the lives of the disciples, the lives of the people that Jesus performed miracles, the lives of the people that Jesus challenged and wanted to correct and discipline. All these things, that phrase rings true. Jesus changes everything. That's what we have been focused on. He has, so far in the Gospel of Luke, has been performing miracles. He was tempted in the wilderness. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's started his public ministry, and we talked last week of like day one on the job for Jesus in his public ministry. The mob got angry at him and tried to throw him off a cliff. So he didn't start out like day one, like it wasn't his best day ever. Um, you wouldn't go home and say, I love my new job. <laughs> Everyone was so nice. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 6 today. We're going to focus on a couple of verses that are very, very well known. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, these are the words that Jesus is speaking of today, that he is teaching today. So we're going to pick it up a little bit before that. Um, and as we do, I want to kind of highlight some of the things that we've been talking about. At work, as Jesus is ministering, are different groups of people. So we've talked about the Pharisees. These are the religious, snobby people, the rule followers. They see Jesus as a threat. They see Jesus as a threat because Jesus is threatening their rules, their system, their control over people. Jesus they see as a threat. So that's one group, the Pharisees. Then there's just kind of the crowds of people, and they love Jesus. They love Jesus. He's doing all these miracles. 
And what they're hoping is that Jesus is going to lead a rebellion against Rome because Israelite is part, Israel is part of the Roman Empire. They are tired of being subjects to Rome. So what all the crowds are hoping is that Jesus is going to rise up and say, let's lead a rebellion and overthrow Rome. That's what's happening there. And then you have a third group of people, the sick, the poor, the people who need a miracle. And they love Jesus. They don't care about the religious rules. They don't care about a political agenda. All they know is that they keep bringing sick people to Jesus, and Jesus is healing them. So if that's you, you don't care about anything else. You love this person who is doing all these miracles. So in this dynamic, everywhere Jesus goes, this dynamic is at work. The people who are suspicious and trying to trap Jesus. The people who are trying to coerce Jesus to lead a rebellion. And the sick people who are just happy that he's performing miracles. So that is where we pick it up in Luke chapter 6 today, starting in verse 12. Luke 6, verse 12, this is when we first meet the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. And I'm going to read verse 12 here, 12 through 16. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. Again, we talked last week how even for Jesus, this was an important thing, time of prayer, time of getting alone in prayer. Went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them who he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We all know the one Judas, don't we? It'd be, ter- it'd be bad to be the other Judas. Wouldn't that be rough? Constantly, you're like, no, I'm not that. I'm the other Judas. You would just want to put that on like a t-shirt. The other guy, the good Judas, the one that didn't betray Jesus. These are the 12 disciples. I find it so interesting that Jesus pulls these 12. It says that there was a group of disciples among which he picked out 12. These are all ordinary Men, these are not anybody in prominent positions. These aren't powerful people. These are ordinary people that Jesus called and said, you're going to be my apostles. You're going to be my disciples. Because Jesus can see the eternal realm, the eternal work that's at work here. He knows he's got a short time with a group of people to teach them everything so that this message of Christ can live on. So that today in 2017, we at Homestead Church can still be hearing and following Jesus. It was up to those 12 disciples to take that message of Jesus and take it out of the first century and have it spread around the world, eventually leading to us today. They didn't know it then, but Jesus understood this dynamic then. He's got to teach these 12 guys everything he knows in a short time so that the message can go forward. And he picks this interesting group of 12 people. Again, none of them are rich, none of them are powerful, but it's an interesting group of guys And I'll just point out one element here, and there's one point I want to make just from this list of 12 guys. We've talked about this a few months ago. Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, is a Jew. He is an Israelite, but he is a tax collector. So that means he has sold out to Rome. He said, okay, Rome, I'll do your dirty work for you. I'll collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And then what the tax collectors would do, why they were so hated, was because they would not only take money from the Israelites and give it to Rome, but Rome also said, 
take any extra you want and keep it for yourself. So they were corrupt. They were hated by the Israelites because they were sellouts to the hated Roman Empire. So that's Matthew. And who else did we read about? We had a guy named Simon who was also called the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. He was known as being a zealot. And what that was, was someone who was so loyal to Israelite, Israel and to Israelites. Politically, socially, they were nationalists. And anything associated with Rome, especially those tax collectors who were selling out to Rome, they were hated. And these zealots were trained and raised up to find anybody loyal to Rome, any traitors, and take them out. So you've got Matthew the sellout tax collector and Simon the zealot. They would hate each other, okay? Now, I imagine, I love to think of this dynamic when Jesus says, okay, it's like picking the softball team. Uh, You 12 guys, you're going to come with me. And the 12 guys kind of gather around and they're looking around. And the moment when Matthew and Simon the zealot lay eyes on each other, everybody would have known there was tension here. Everybody would have known this is not going to end well. These two guys are not going to get along. They are not going to get along. And yet Jesus calls them to be his disciples. And what I get from that is the gospel of Jesus is a greater unifying factor than anything we could come up with on this earth. Racially, politically, economically, socially, different nations, whatever you can think of, think of two individuals that you could put in a room that would just be like a powder keg of conflict. And what we learn from this and what Jesus teaches us just from this is when we are in Christ, we are unified above anything else. So that's why it drives me crazy when churches start dividing themselves for any reason. It could be political or whatever. Because we know the gospel of Christ unifies us in a stronger way than anything that divides us. And so I want that to always be something that we as a church keep at the front of our mind, especially as more and more people join us. And we might think, oh, those two people are not going to get along. No, we are unified in Christ. And that is what we learn from just those two guys. There's other examples in those lists of names of people who would not get along. Probably the two Judases, you know, it's my name. I want it first. I'm, I'm older than you. So he pulls out these 12 disciples, and then we're going to move on to verse 20. This is when Jesus begins to teach. So he's teaching his disciples, but he's also surrounded by this crowd. And that's where we pick up verse 20. This is the Beatitudes. This is the start of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous speeches, one of the most famous writings, certainly the most famous sermon ever preached. Verse 20, this is when Jesus, in the midst of all of this, it says this, verse 20, looking at his disciples... He said this. Now everyone's going to be leaning in like Jesus is going to talk. He says this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And right away, everyone would have went, huh? That's not right. Poor people aren't blessed, but Jesus is teaching it. Verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy 
because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestor treated the false prophets. So this is Jesus again. This would have just been totally backwards for everyone listening. This was Jesus taking another moment just to rock the thinking of everyone there, just to kind of shake them up a little bit. What he is saying is totally against everything they believed, not just about society, but of God, too. People were poor because... God was angry at them. That's what they believed. People who were sick because they've done something and they deserved it. This is how they thought. So now Jesus is turning that thing around and saying, no, blessed are those who are poor and sick. And this would have been just mind-blowing to the people who were there. They would have been like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And in verse 24, what I just read, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. There's another translation that says, for you've already received your payment in full. You've already received your payment in full. Now, what Jesus is teaching is this, and I want everyone to get this. Jesus is not saying money is bad. Jesus is not saying we should all go out in the cold without a coat on so we can be sick because that's better. No. What Jesus is saying is this, and this is the whole point of this message today. This is a principle of faith that needs to be in each of us, what Jesus is teaching. If you set your heart and your energy to gain what the world values now, you might be able to get them, but that's all you get. That's the principle Jesus is teaching. You've already gotten what you value. If you set out to achieve what the world values now, you might get there, but then that's all you get. That's it. But if your heart and energy is devoted to Jesus, sure, you may encounter some hardship, You may encounter some trial. You may encounter difficulty, but your payment is still to come. The good is down the road. You can search for immediate good, what the world values now, or you can set your mind on what is ahead and say, I want the greater good down the road. Thank you. I love it. A Minnesotan amen. I love it. So the choice Jesus lays out to his listeners is this. Will you take the easy way which yields immediate pleasure, or will you take the more difficult way which leads to toil and sometimes suffering? One commentary I was reading this week says this, if you take the world's way, you must abandon the values of Christ. I want you to get that. If you take the world's way, you must abandon the values of Christ. If you take Christ's way, you must abandon the values of of the world? Will you live for the pleasure of what is now, or will you be able to look for the greater good down the road? This is the question. This is the point that Jesus is teaching, and this is what we all need to get. What are we going to focus on, now or down the road? Now, this is the idea of discipline. This is the idea of discipline. We don't like that word, but this is not a foreign thing to anybody here. We all know this, right? We all apply this to different areas of our life. For us, it's 
in our house, it's kids, and we're in the midst of kid three and four with braces and orthodontics, okay? So my greater good speech every day for my kids is, you're going to brush those teeth, and you're going to floss, and you're going to do all the things because of the greater good, right? I don't say it that way. I say, because of all the money I've spent on braces, you're going to do that. These teeth are going to stay good. You know, I, it's, nobody likes to floss, when I floss, I'm like, this is terrible. I don't do it because, yay, it's fun. I, well, I do it because I'm going to get guilted by my dentist in a few months. But we do things for the greater good. Exercise, diet. We do things because we want to, what is uncomfortable now, we do it because we know there's a greater good. We have some financial advisors in the room. I imagine for a financial planner, this lesson, getting people to learn this lesson, is everything. Save and invest now. Sure, it would be awfully fun to go spend all your money on a new snowmobile, but you could do the, the look ahead to the greater good down the road and save and invest. This idea of discipline, foregoing what is immediate for what is the greater good, is not a foreign thing in so many ways. But yet when it comes to our faith, when it comes to facing temptation, when it comes to any number of things... We have a hard time applying it to that. Students, I'm going to challenge the students here. You are going to be faced in school with any number of temptations from friends, other kids, other kids' older brothers and sisters will say, this is how we live. This is what's going to be great now. This is what's going to be fun now. And you have to learn to say, no, I know what the greater good is. I know that God has a greater plan for me down the road that doesn't involve me throwing it all away for something that is fun in the moment. Students, you got to learn that. Adults, we got to learn that. This is the idea of discipline. And this is the heart of so many of our struggles in our faith, so many of our struggles in a temptation area in our life, is because we know what feels good now, and that's all we're thinking about. We're not thinking about the greater good that God has called us to. The lovely Christy Kerr has written a book that we've done as the moms group here called Undisciplined. And, uh, and she always makes the joke like, yay, everyone looks at the title like, yay, we're going to read a book on discipline. But the main idea of that book is the main idea of this sermon and what Jesus is teaching. Discipline to us is like a muscle. It's like a muscle that needs to be exercised. And the more you exercise it, the stronger it's going to get. The more you exercise discipline in small things, the stronger that muscle is going to be when you face something serious, when you face something that could change your life, when you face a temptation that could destroy your family, when you've exercised that discipline muscle in the small things, look to the greater good. Now you'll be able to do that in other areas of temptation in your life. Some of us have area, we all have areas we struggle in, right? Some of us, it's a, our way of thinking. Some of us is what we view on the internet, what we view in movies and TV. Some of us, it's an anger issue, Whatever, whatever that issue is, whatever temptation seems to always trip you up, and I'm sure we can all think of something in our own life, whatever that is that's always tripping you up, it's going to come down to our inability to see past the immediate and see long term, right? I know this is not good right now. I know this will harm me. I know this temptation is not what God has for me, is not the greater good, but yet in the moment... It feels like something you want to do. In the moment, you want to let your thoughts go there. In the moment, you want to click on the, that website. In the moment, you want to lash out in anger or in the or whatever it is. In the moment. 
And when we can learn to discipline, that is when we start the hard work of overcoming temptation areas in our life. Man, how many, how many marriages and families have been torn apart by a momentary decision of this seems appealing without being able to see the greater good? Just in that area alone. This is the principle of Jesus we need to learn, we need to grow in, we need to improve in. We are all going to face temptation, right? We can all say amen to that. Amen. We are all going to face temptation. Some little things, some big things. However, and I need you to learn this, I need you to hear this, you are not ruled and controlled by temptations. You're not ruled and controlled by your temptations. We need to learn to discipline. We need to learn to forget about what is immediate and look to the greater good. There's a couple verses I wanted to uh, read. 1 Corinthians 10.13. There's a few verses that just talk about temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, it'll be on the screen. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In a moment of temptation, look for that moment of clear thinking. And then it's up to you to do the hard work and be disciplined of, no, I'm not going to give in for what feels good now. I'm going to look to the greater good. Hebrews 12, verse 4 says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's always an interesting and kind of haunting verse to me. Because what that says to me and what that says is there's a hard work involved. There's a hard work. If you find yourself continually tripped up over an area of life, continually tripped up over a temptation, God is going to be with you, and he's not going to tempt you beyond what you can bear. But there's a hard work involved of just simply saying, no, I'm not going to do this because it feels good in the moment. I'm going to resist this temptation. And as you do that, you'll get that muscle, that disciplined muscle, stronger and stronger. Temptation is not overpowering you. And it might feel like that. An area that you struggle in in your life is not overpowering you, but it might feel like that. We must learn to put off what feels good in the moment for what is good long term. Then we continue on verse 27. And I love this because Jesus takes this idea and now applies this to how we treat other people. He takes this idea of don't just dive into what you feel like doing in the, in the moment. Look for the greater good. Now he applies this to other people. In verse 27, it says this. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if everyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. We're going to stop there. This is how we interact in our world, in our families, in our relationships. This is the Bible teaching actually having really... Uh, real practical applications for how you go through life. This is the practical application, is in a moment of conflict with someone else, if you're only concerned with what you want to say in that moment, if you're only concerned with getting in your argument or getting your shots in, you know, we've all been there, husbands and wives, we've been there in that moment where I'm like, oh, I know I'm supposed to be patient and kind, but what I really want to say is this. And you think, if I could just get my point across, 
then everything's going to feel great, right? And then you land that perfect line, that perfect moment where you think, ha, I finally said the thing that I want to say. Well, does, what's the greater good that comes? Is it all like, oh, everything's resolved perfectly? No, that just stirs up more conflict, right? I've experienced that maybe in my family <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> If you're only concerned about what you want to say in that moment, if you're only concerned about your emotion in that moment and how you're feeling and not the greater good down the road, well, the conflict is going to continue, right? You may feel good in the moment, but you're going to regret it later. How many times have you had to go to someone? It could be your spouse or a kid or a coworker or someone. And then after saying all the things you felt to say later on, you're just like, you know what? Why did I say those things? And how many times have you had to go and clear up something you said just because you started to shoot your mouth off in the heat of the moment? This is the practical application. This is Scripture walking itself out in our lives. And even though you might feel you won the moment in any sort of conflict, that's going to have ramifications down the road. If you are a person in a, in a friendship where you always have to be right, you ever have a friendship like that or a relationship like that where that person's always got to be right? It always has to be what they want to do. It's all revolving around them. Well, eventually, you're going to realize, why am I friends with that person, right? Eventually, if you're that person that always has to be right, eventually that's going to start having ramifications to your relationships. It's just how it works. People are going to be like, I don't want to hang out with that person, Students, they're going to be that way. I don't want to hang out with that person. They always have to be right. And if you have someone in your world that always has to be right, you can, the lesson we would tell our kids is you can say, I think they would remember this, we would say when they felt like they were being bossed around by somebody, you say, you're not my mother. You're not my mother. And Betty was young enough to learn it, and she would misspeak a little bit, and she'd say, you're not my mother. You're not my mother. So that's our saying in our house. You're not my mother. In that moment of relational conflict, in that moment, whatever it is, and you want to say the thing, you feel like you're being mistreated. This is Scripture walking itself out. Let it go. Look to the greater good. And that part in your heart that says, oh, but I don't think I can get it. let them get away with it. Do you have that? I have that. You feel that, oh, but if I don't say something, they're going to get away with it. And then there's injustice. And then, you know, you, you, one of those, you know those moments? Well, that in your heart, that moment that says, I can't let them get away with it, that's the self. That's the flesh. That's the stuff we're supposed to be disciplining ourselves against. So that can be a sign. When it's that anger rising up, that can be a sign for you to say, no, this is, my, this is a chance to exercise my discipline muscle. All right? This is a chance to resist that temptation. This is a chance to grow in the greater fruit of God in my life. Jesus concludes, well, this chapter concludes, we're going to jump ahead. He starts driving this point home with a story, with a, with a parable, with an example, an illustration. Verse 46 tells the story of the wise and foolish builder. You've probably heard this story before. Verse 46 says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they're like. And so the audience is like, okay, tell us what they're like. They are like a man building a house who dug deep down and laid a foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent stuck, struck, and that house, torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. 
But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck, or the storm or the flood, the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now we get this idea in our modern society. With the audience that Jesus was talking to, they would have understood it a little bit differently. For that part of the world was dry and desert, and then they had a rainy season for a short season every year where the rains would come and these huge rivers would form and the water would rush down and then it would dry up. Well, where the rivers were created this very smooth, flat surface, very sandy, very easy to build on. So what Jesus is saying is, If you don't think about long-term, you're like the person who sees the dried-up riverbed, sees, ah, this is super easy to dig. I don't have to work very hard to build a house here. Let's build this house. It'll be great. When everybody knows that in a matter of months, the rains are coming again. It's not a matter of if they're going to come. Everybody knows the rains are coming again, and this whole area is going to get washed out. What Jesus is saying is, if you did that, you would be terribly short-sighted. You would be terribly concerned with just what's easy now, not even thinking months down the road where this whole thing is going to get washed away. The storms and the floods aren't random. Everybody knew they were coming. But yet, that's how sometimes we live our lives, isn't it? That's how sometimes we live our lives. We know. We know what the greater good is. We know if we work and discipline, it's going to take some hard work, but we know what the greater good is, where God has us, where we should build our lives on a solid foundation. But yet, how often do we settle for that sandy ground of just, oh, this is easy. This just feels easy right now. This is just an immediate, gratifying whatever. This just feels easy right now. And we build our life on this foundation that's just going to get wiped out. It's just going to get wiped out. The very last words of that passage I just read... The house collapsed, and its destruction was complete. That, I love that word. The destruction was complete. It was already doomed. It was already, destru- it was already destroyed. It just didn't know it yet. The house on the sand was already doomed. It just didn't know it yet until the rains came. This is how we must live our lives with the greater good. This is the hard work of faith, looking for the greater good, building our life on something firm and solid, not chasing after the immediate pleasures of this world, looking forward to what God has for us. Now, as we close in just a couple minutes, I don't want to give, I don't want to give this impression that following Jesus is like flossing your teeth, just like, oh, it's just miserable every day, but I know someday heaven will be there. Now I just got to floss, you know, just... Just do the discipline, nothing good here. This is not the principle of Scripture. This is like the bonus that comes with following Jesus, okay? Not only when you apply the words of Jesus to your life, not only is eternity waiting for you. Now, let's just be said, even if it was following Christ is just hard work on earth and heaven is eternal rewards, even if it was just that, that would still be worth it, right? That would still be worth it. We tend to think life here is long. Life is very short here on earth compared to eternity. But Jesus teaches us it's more than that. It's more than just heaven. It's rewards here. It's fullness of life 
here. It's when you apply these words, not only is there a eternal reward, but your life will be solidly built on the foundation that will last. Your life will be built on the things that bring you true joy and not the things that are fleeting and will pass and will be washed away at the first sign of a storm. Living for God will involve moments where we have to push down our flesh and our desires. There's going to be times where there's hard work. But even in the, in the case of relationships, which I just mentioned a few minutes ago, if you apply these principles, well, you will be blessed in your relationships. People will look at you as someone that they want to be close to. If you apply these to your finances, you will be blessed down the road. God will bless you. You will have savings and investments and retirement. There's ways that God brings about blessings now, not only just in heaven, but here on earth. So faith in God will involve some hard work. But it's not just flossing your teeth. It's not just that. There is rewards. There is benefits. So as we close today, I want to challenge you with this. That's the main point of this message. It's the main point that Jesus is teaching. Don't live for what feels good and gratifying right now. Don't live for what the world values. Don't live for what all the other students in your school value and say is important. Don't live for all the things in the media that you say, well, this is important because it's on TV all the time. Don't live for what the world values now. That will be washed away. That will be washed away. That is not a firm foundation. Live for what God values. Do the work of discipline. Do the work of foregoing the immediate temptation for the greater good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that you would help us do this. You would help us strengthen our faith, our discipline. This is, there's times where messages aren't the, the most feel good, and this might be one of those where there is a discipline involved. But, Lord, we certainly don't want it to be said of our faith that when it gets difficult that we just give up, that if there's not an immediate reward that we just give up. No, we trust you. We trust your greater good for us, not only in heaven one day, but here on earth. So, Lord, help us to forego the immediate temptation. Help us to grow in areas that we need to grow in. And, Lord, I pray for people here, and this can apply to all of us, that there's an area of life that just keeps tripping them up something maybe they've struggled with or battled their whole life, and they've just kind of accepted it, like, well, it's just who I am. It's just the way it's going to be. Lord, I pray that you would reignite a faith and a, and a discipline and a passion for the things of God in us, that we would say, no, this is not who I am. This is not who I am. This is just an immediate thing. I'm going to forego that and discipline myself to think of the greater good. I pray that you would help each of us to do that. And for those areas that we struggle in in our lives, that you would help us get victory over those, one step at a time, one disciplined day at a time, Lord. Because ultimately, God, we want to see your fruit in us. We want to see the fruit of a, a life committed to you, a fruit of a life that is just sold out for you, that is filled with joy and peace in our relationships with others, abundant life now. That is what you promise us, and Lord, we believe that that's what you have for us, and we thank you for that. Pray that you would bless us as your church. Give us a great week. Help us this week to walk out the things that we have learned, that we could put into practice the things that your word teaches us. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody at Homestead said, amen.